Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we have been making our way through First and 2 Samuel, and we're here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Of course, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David's uh, great sin uh, against Bathsheba and Uriah and ultimately against the Lord. And then we see uh, at the end of chapter 11 that the thing that David had done that he thought he had gotten away with had displeased the Lord. The, the sin that he had done displeased the Lord. And then we come to verse 1 of Second Samuel chapter 12. And if you would stand with me in honor of God, if you're able to, uh, this morning as we read a little bit of chapter 12 here. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. But you did it secretly." Uh, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. You may be seated. May God encourage and bless us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are rejoicing uh, this morning at our brothers and sisters who have trusted in you and proclaimed that faith in you publicly this morning. We pray that you would sustain them. We pray that we as a church would care and protect them. Uh, we pray that you would help us to respond in obedience. We, as, as Caleb mentioned, as if there are any who have not placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life, trusting in Him alone, we pray that their hearts would be convicted, that Your Spirit would draw them, and they would respond in faith and repentance. And we pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. In the book, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, 
we encounter a 17th century minister in the town of New England named Arthur Dimsdale. Arthur Dimsdale is a minister who has fallen into sin. He has an affair with Hester Prynne, a member of his congregation, and she becomes pregnant, and so she's exposed to the scorn and ridicule of the whole town, but Dimsdale keeps his own involvement in the affair secret. He conceals it, and and no one in the town suspects that he is the father of this child, and so he's gotten away with this sin, right? Wrong. He's tortured. He's miserable. He's affected physically and spiritually. Uh, Hawthorne writes, he, he suffers under bodily disease, and he's gnawed and tortured by some black trouble of the soul. I remember last week we talked about sin and its, its spiraling effect and, and how sin leads to, to greater sin and, and, and death ultimately. And we talked about the law of sin and the power of sin in our lives and how, how sin makes promises and it delivers on those promises but to, to some degree, but there's much more that it delivers that it doesn't want us to think about. And that's what's happened with Dimsdale. Sin has made a promise. It's delivered. And now he's finding out that there's so much more to the contract. And it's only when he confesses his sin, when he comes clean, that he experiences relief. He says, thanks be to him who hath led me hither. He exclaims that as he confesses his sin and finds deliverance. I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy confronting others in their sin. And what's more, uh, I don't enjoy being confronted in my sin. My, my flesh recoils at that. I, I don't delight in that. And yet, what we see here in, in this passage and in so many other places in Scripture is that confrontation of sin is a blessing from God. Because it's, it's in confrontation of, of sin that that's one of the means that God uses to deliver us from sin and the effects of sin in our lives, to, to point us to, to Jesus Christ and the, the deliverance that's found in God and God alone. As we come to the end of chapter 11, we might be thinking, okay, I know what's going to happen in chapter 12 and his sin's going to be exposed, but as, as David comes to the end of chapter 11, in between chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, several months go by, and, and perhaps David, during this time period, is experiencing some joy, like he's gotten away with his, with his sin. It's been concealed. Uriah's out of the picture. Bathsheba, his, his wife now, uh, maybe, he's, maybe he's experiencing some level of joy as he is in this time period before his sin is going to be exposed. Hardly. Later, as he would reflect back on this time, he would write Psalm 32. And, and listen to what David says in Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression, whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the, the, the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David writes, whenever he was being deceptive and keeping his sin concealed, when I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. During this time, David is telling us, day after day he felt the hand of the Lord against him. He felt the weight of his sin. And it is only through Nathan's confrontation of David that David experiences relief. Here's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at this passage. Confronting sin, this is the main idea I want us to think about together this morning. Confronting sin helps believers receive God's gracious discipline and restoration. Confronting sin helps believers receive God's gracious discipline and restoration. You and I need people in our lives who will confront us in our sin. You'll say, look, this is not the, the way to live. Whether our sin is, is hidden or concealed, whether we're sinning knowingly or unknowingly, we need people in our lives who feel comfortable coming to us and saying, hey, this is, this is sin. And we need to be the types of people who love others enough to say, look, this is not the path to joy as we see brothers and sisters we love, and sin. And so we're going to look at four words here that help us understand how God uses confrontation to deliver us from the misery of sin. And so we're going to start with confrontation. That's the first word, confrontation. And look at the text with me here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Look at these, these first 12 verses. Remember, In chapter 11, we saw some sending. David sends, he sends messengers, he sends letters. Joab sends messengers back to David. Now, as we come to chapter 12, verse 1, we have God sending. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is the same prophet we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7, delivering to David the good news of the covenant, God's blessing. Now, Nathan is still being a messenger of God's grace here, but it's a, it's a message of grace that isn't as pleasant for David to hear. Nathan begins by, he's been sent by God to confront the king in his sin, and, and we know that sometimes a confrontation of kings by prophets doesn't go all that well. As we go through, through Scripture, we see stories of prophets trying to confront kings and their sin, and, and kings responding in anger and wrath, and the prophets bearing the, the brunt of that. Nathan goes to David, not quite sure how David's going to respond to this confrontation, but he comes from the Lord with a word from the Lord. And he begins very wisely by telling David a story. It says, David, there are two guys, a rich man a poor man. Look at the text. And he, he lays it on thick, right? I mean, this is, a, this is quite the story. Rich man, as a rich man, has lots of flocks and herds. Poor man has one little tiny lamb. How did he feel about the lamb? He loved the lamb. He, he bought it. He brought it home. It grew up with him. He, he paints this picture. He'd like feed it out of his hand, a little morsel here. He took a cup, and he drank the little lamb, would lick the cup too, and <laughs> sweet little, and he would hold it in his, it was like one of his daughters, he'd hold it in his, his hands. And then the rich neighbor had a visitor, didn't want to take one of his lambs or flocks or whatever, and so he just took this little lamb, took it, and ate it. David is ticked. 
He feels this righteous indignation, right? Zealous. He wants justice. He says, this guy deserves to die and backs off a little bit, or at least pay back fourfold this lamb that he is, has taken. And Nathan's rebuke is, is swift, uh, David. Uh, it's not this man. It's you're the man. Two words in the Hebrew text. You're the man. You are that man. And then he reminds David, if you look at the text here, he reminds David of all the things that God has done for him. Look at verse 7. He says, God says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of, of Saul. I, I gave you all of your master's house, including his wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And then he says this, and if, if, if all that that I'd done wasn't enough, I, I would have done more. I would have continued to, to lavish my, my grace upon you and allow you to experience the, the joy of walking in obedience to me. But what did you do? Verse 9, you despised the word of the Lord. You walked in disobedience to my instructions. And you took the little lamb. You struck down Uriah. You, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And, and now, he says, and we'll talk about the consequences here in a moment, but the, the sword will never depart from your house. You've taken You've despised me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, and, and I'm going to ex expose your evil, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the coming, the coming weeks. He says in verse 12, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. So Nathan gives a warning as he reveals the consequences that David's going to experience as a result of the sin. So there's God's grace. There's wisdom in how Nathan approaches David in this confrontation. There's clear pointing to this, there's a God-centered nature to this rebuke, pointing to God in the confrontation. There's warning of, of the future consequences of continuing in sin. Why are you and I so reluctant to confront sin? Why are we so reluctant to, to go to people that we love and, and talk to them about their sin? I think for me, it's, it's often fear, right? I, I don't know how they're going to respond. So often, whenever we, we go to someone and talk to, hey, this is something that concerns me, this is what I'm seeing, so often it goes so poorly, right? I was recently uh, listening to a podcast, uh, the, the Nine Marks podcast, Pastors Talk, I don't know if any of you listened to that, but there's this, this great episode a, a week or two ago that, that talks about a, a confrontation that took place. And Mark Dever, who's the, the pastor at Capitol Hills Baptist Church and founder of Nine Marks Ministry, he was talking about how about a year ago he was speaking in a, a room full of Baptists, which is often going to get you in trouble, right? And he's, he's speaking in front of a room full of Baptists, and he kind of just goes on this riff about Presbyterians and, and talks about how, you know, he kind of dismissive towards them and and. and kind of disrespectful in, in some of the things that he says. And a year ago, you didn't think about it. He's kind of being funny, but also a little bit serious. And then a year goes by, and his comments go viral, right? Someone takes that clip, and they put it, post it somewhere. And uh, one of his friends, uh, Kevin DeYoung, contacts him. He emails him and says, hey, uh, Mark, I, I saw this, and, and here, here's kind of my concerns with what you said. And Mark looked at the link, and he says he just instantly felt shame, right? Oh, oh I cannot believe that I was so dismissive and, and arrogant in those ways. And so he called up Kevin and, 
and offered an apology, asked for forgiveness. And on the podcast, they were talking about this, this situation. They thought it would be helpful to kind of talk about confrontation, how to respond. And, and listen, each one was asked what the other had done well. And listen to what Mark says. He says, what Kevin did well is, one, he, he acted quickly, right? He didn't just let it stew and, and kind of think about how, what a terrible guy Mark is. And, and then he also said he, he also got counsel from others. You know, he says, I, I want to confront this, this sin, but how, how should I do it? He wasn't gossiping. He wasn't, like, look at how bad Mark is, but hey, this is a guy I love. What, what's your advice on how I should talk to him about this? He says he also uh, wrote to him directly, and he was very gracious when he was apologized to. You know, so Mark says, I apologized to, to Kevin, and Kevin received it. Well, like he wanted me to repent. It's not like he wanted to expose the iniquity of the Baptists. He, he wanted Mark to, to grow through this. And Kevin said that what Mark did well when confronted, he said, look, he, he uh, first of all, uh, had shown a pattern of receiving correction well, so he knew that he wasn't just going to blow up whenever he talked to him. He also uh, thought he did well in, in responding quickly, not defensively, but thankfully. And then he made restitution. So he removed the clip, tried to follow up, and made sure that he had, had done things to restore that relationship. In other words, as I kind of think about it, there was a high level of trust that each one knew that the other wanted what was best for them. So how do we apply this as we think about confrontation, the need for confrontation? I'm going to give you some thoughts on, on how to, to confront well, but before I give you some of those principles, what I would just first of all say is this, you and I need to be people who put ourselves in relationships and situations where we can be confronted, right? We don't want to just talk about how we can be good people to confront others and how we should do that, but we want to put ourselves in relationships and situations where others can come to us and, and feel comfortable talking to us about our sin. In fact, here's a homework assignment, okay? Here's your, <laughs> nervous? Uh, me too. Uh, do this. T t ask two or three people who are pretty close to you. Ask them this question. Say, how easy is it to correct me in my sin? Okay? How easy is it to talk to me about things that I've done wrong? And then, this is key, don't argue back, okay? <laughs> they say, you know, it's, it's sometimes you, you don't, you don't uh, tend, tend to, to listen to what I'm… To, what, give me an example. What do you mean I don't listen well? I'm not argumentative. If you do that, that's, that's a clue as to what your problem is, Right? So receive that. And, and then ask, ask this question too. How can, I, how can I make it easier for you to approach me when I've done something wrong? What are some things that I could do to be a, a person who receives correction more easily? Okay, so that's on you. Now, as you confront others, what are, what are some, some principles here of confrontation as we're willing to confront others because we love them and we want to see them grow? Uh, number one, uh, confrontation, number one, confrontation should be built on the authority of God's Word, right? Nathan doesn't come to David just saying, hey, uh, David, I'm just kind of annoyed by some of the things you've done, and so I want to confront you on, on those things. And, and just, just kind of my, you know, grain of, grain of salt, take it for what you want, but I, I, I'm annoyed by these things. No, Nathan is going to David based on the authority of God's Word. And our, our confrontation needs to be based upon, first of all, is, is this something that, that God has said is, is sinful? You and I might have a, 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 a difference of opinion on, on some wisdom issue, 
You know, maybe you think this is the the right car to buy, and I think this is the right car to buy. I'm not going to confront you in your sin because you bought a car that's different than the car that I would buy, or you have a different opinion about who your favorite sports team is, or, or whatever, right? That's not, that's not something we confront about. And we also want to be really careful on, on debatable matters, on, on issues of conscience. Maybe my conscience says, I think this is the right way to apply God's Word here, and you say, well, I think this is the right way to apply God's Word here, and Maybe it's a, a, a difference in terms of how we handle politics or, or some feature of our parenting. And so, you know what? This is, I'm convinced that this is what God wants me to do. You're convinced that this is what God wants you to do. I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong, but as I talk to you, I don't sense a hardened heart to God's revelation. I don't sense you actively in disobedience to God, right? And so, I'm, I'm careful in how we talk. I'm going to talk about those things with people that I'm close to, but it's going to be a different type of confrontation, right? But when there's a willful uh, or a, a clear violation of, of God's instruction, His law, His moral law for us, and I'm saying, look, this is, this is what I see in your life, and this is what I see God telling us to do. These things are at odds with one another, right? Okay? Secondly, secondly, confrontation should be attempted with wisdom, Right? Some people are like, well, I, I just really want to obey God and confront. I love confrontation, and I'm going to confront like nobody's business, okay? That's not biblical, right? That's not wise. Nathan confronts at the right time, in the right way. He tells a story. He, he makes sure that, that this is something that he's, he, he's doing all that he can to maximize success in this confrontation, and you and I should do the same. Whenever... Uh, Maybe you're a husband and there's some situation you feel like you need to talk to with your wife and it's there late at night and you're just kind of sitting there and you're stewing. You're like, you know what? God wants me to confront. Honey, wake up. We got to talk. That is a dumb idea, right? Okay? It's not wise. It's not kind. It's not gracious. Uh, Whitney, she's, she's uh, said this to people before, I and mean, I've said this publicly, she, she knows, like, there's something she needs to talk to me about, like, there's something I, maybe I need to, to work on, or something she doesn't, at 10, 15 on a Sunday morning, doesn't say, hey, Daniel, uh, can we talk before you go up there and are a hypocrite? Um, you know, it's, not, it's not the time, right? She's gracious with me in that. We want to attempt confrontation with, with wisdom. Number three, confrontation should be contextualized by relationship, okay? In other words, uh, the closer you are to someone, the, the more direct you're going to be able to be in confrontation and, and the more your responsibility is to confront someone, right? So uh, the, the closer someone is to me in terms of my family or my, my, my care group or as part of the same church, the, the responsibility is greater. I, I don't have the responsibility if I hear some story about someone in some other church, I don't have the responsibility to call them up, hey, just want you to know I'm a Christian, heard what you did, would like to confront you. Uh, that's, that's not how confrontation works. We, we do that in the, in the context of relationship, and based upon who that person is, it, it affects what we say. Like the way that I confront an, an older man in the faith is going to be different than I might confront my son or uh, someone that is one, like one of my kids, right? The, the confrontation is, is different. It's, it's contextualized by that relationship. And you, you shouldn't be able to say, well, uh, I guess I'm in the clear because I have no friends. Uh, that's, that's not right either, right? We want to be involved in the church body life enough to where we can, as Galatians 6 tells us, uh, have, 
have, have the burden placed upon us of, of other people. We want to, to share that burden. Another principle here, number four, confrontation should be centered on God, right? In Psalm 51, David says, against you and, and you alone I have sinned. He doesn't mean that he hadn't sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he's saying, ultimately, as I, I think about my sin, it's a sin against God. And as I fail to honor God and be in obedience to him, it's going to affect how I treat others horizontally. So, confrontation needs to be centered on, on God. And uh, For example, whenever we're, we're disciplining our children, your, your child's done something disobedient, we don't discipline them and say, uh, I'm, I'm just so disappointed that you treated me this way. What do we do? We say, well, look, here's, here's what God's Word says, right? Yeah, you, you were disrespectful to Dad. That's bad. Now, why is it bad, though? It's not bad because I'm some sort of perfect being that you owe your uh, complete allegiance to. Being disrespectful toward me is, is bad because it means you're in disobedience to what God tells you to do in Ephesians 6 and, and honor your father and mother and and the Ten Commandments. So that, that's why what you're doing is, is bad. So our confrontation needs not be, hey, I just want to tell you that something kind of rubbed me the wrong way about what you did. It's like, hey, look, this is what God says to do. And I want you, I want you to experience the fullness of walking in obedience to God. And so here's, here's, here's what I see in your life that's different than what I believe God would have for you based upon what he's told us to do. And we're doing that, of course, very humbly. We're saying, hey, Help me. You know, my kids want to do an imitation of me. Uh, one, of the, one of the phrases they use is, help me understand, you know, because <laughs> apparently I say that a lot in my correction. <laughs> help me understand, right? Which brings me to the next point. Confrontation should be tempered by, by gentleness. There should be a gentleness. That doesn't mean evasiveness, but with gentleness, as Galatians 6 tells us. Some people aren't going to get it when we're evasive, and so we don't want to be evasive. And I, I would love it if all confrontation could just be done by innuendo, right? Just kind of like a hint, right? But that's not the case. So we have to be clear. We also have to be gentle. It means, as we see in Galatians 6, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in disobedience, uh, our, our desire is, is restoration. Our desire is is to see a person who's walking in disobedience to walk in obedience. And that should come through so clearly as we talk to those that we're confronting in sin. Another principle, confrontation should, should be warning of dangers, right? As we talk to people who are in, in sin, and particularly, particularly in willful, entrenched disobedience to God, we need to say, look, this is... This is where this leads, right? Uh, the way of the transgressor, as Proverbs tells us, is hard. And, and I love you enough to say, look, if you continue in this path of, of, of treating your, your family this way, this is where it ends. This is where it ends with, with you and your relationship with your, your spouse. This is where this ends in relationship with your kids. If you decide to continue on this, this path of deception, this is what it's going to lead to relationships with other people in the church. This is what it's going to, to mean in terms of alienation from your friends. And I love you, and I do not want that for you. So confrontation needs to warn people of the dangers of continued disobedience against God. And then finally, confrontation should be pointing people to hope. Isaiah 42.3 says that a bruised reed he will not break. God won't take a, a bruised reed and, and just break it, right? There's, there's gentleness 
And part of that gentleness is pointing people toward the hope. Hey, this is, this is where you're headed, and, and I don't want that for you, but this, this isn't where things have to go, right? Here's, here's the hope. Leads us to the next word that I want us to think about. That's the word confession. David is, is trapped. He, he thought that he escaped this moment of having to, to publicly proclaim his sin. And, and even though he was miserable, he thought, well, this is better than the exposure of my sin. But he's trapped. Everything is known. And so the response is short. Again, just two words in the, the Hebrew. Uh, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, some have said, well, this, is, this is too weak. He should have groveled more. He, he, should have, he should have talked more about his sin against Uriah and, and Bathsheba and the other people who died. And, and I, I think if, if you look at other psalms where he, he talks about what he's done, like you, know, you just write these down if you want, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, Psalm 143. He does take time to... To, to process what he's done and to talk about confession. But here, what I appreciate about his words is, 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 is there brevity? Is there conciseness? He doesn't say, yeah, I have sinned, but it, it had been a long day. Uh, yeah, I, I, I sinned, but I, I really didn't mean for it to get out of control like it did. I, I sinned, but you should hear about what some other kings in this, in this area do, Right? I mean, yeah, this is bad, but, but I've, I've heard way worse than this. The, the confession is, is quick, it's concise, it's God-centered, and our confession should be the same. We're undoubtedly, when we're confronted with our sin, going to be able to point to ways in which the person who confronted us isn't doing it right. We're going to talk about, okay, you said I did these things, really I just did this, and all this stuff is invalid, but that's not what David does. He doesn't deflect, he doesn't explain, he confesses. That brings us to the next word that I want us to think about, and that's the word consequences. Consequences. We saw some of the consequences already in Uriah's, uh, sorry, in Nathan's confrontation. He talks about how the sword is never going to depart from his house, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be out of the pulpit the next two Sundays, but I'm going to come back on the 22nd, and then we're going to spend the next three Sundays in chapters 13 through 20, just kind of walking through the aftermath of David's sin. So I encourage you to be reading those, those chapters in the intervening time. But some of the consequences are you know, this, this idea of the sword never departing from his house. He's, he's going to ex- experience many difficulties as a result. And then we see one more consequence that is, is mentioned. Nathan tells, tells David, uh, the Lord has put this away from you, has put your, away your sin, you shall not die. So there's this immediate comfort that David receives that the sin has been uh, passed over, it's been, it's been dealt with. But it doesn't mean that the consequences won't need it to be dealt with. He says, nevertheless, verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. There are consequences of, of what's taken place. Uh, we call this the law of the harvest. What we sow is, is what we reap. Galatians chapter 6 is, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so sin bears fruit. And the, the, the fruit of having these multiple wives and, and some of the, the sexual sin that he's already engaged in and the sin with, with Bathsheba is going to bear fruit. But there's also this, this consequence with this child. And, and these are some hard verses. It says the child's going to die, and it's because of David scorning the Lord. But we also see that David's been forgiven. How do we, how do we reconcile these things? In fact, as you go on and you look at the, the text, and, and look what it says about what David does. It says in verse 16, he sought God on behalf of the child, and he, he fasted, he goes in, he lays all night on the ground, and, and, and people are worried about him because he's not eating any food. And then on the seventh day, the child dies. So, so why did the Lord not respond? So many things to say here, so many questions we might have. The, the first thing that I would encourage you to think about here as we think about consequences is, is this. Your suffering and, and the suffering and the consequences of sin is not condemnation from God, okay? Uh, scripture tells us in Romans there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you suffer consequences from your sin, understand these are, these are, not, these are not forms of God's condemnation, His, his judgment. As we suffer consequences from sin, these are not the consequences of condemnation, but consequences designed for sanctification, for making us more devoted to God. It seems like in the text there are some things, including the death of the child, that have already been set in motion by David's sin, and God doesn't intervene to stop that. He appoints this for David. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but here's, here's a hard truth for you this morning, okay? And let's just, just see if this is true. Search God's Word. Is this right? The hard truth is this, but a good truth. God is going to do what is necessary to prepare His children for eternity. And as Hebrew 12 tells us about the discipline of the Lord, these are not signs of God's condemnation, but actually signs of God's ultimate love. Another truth here that that I think is important for us to to think about is we need to be careful about separating the consequences for sin and other hard circumstances in our life. And so sometimes we think, okay, I'm suffering this consequence because of sin and this consequence because of someone else's sin. And so God loves me here and doesn't love me here. No, even in, even in his discipline or experiencing the consequences of our sin, we see God's love in that. Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort others who are in affliction. Then he says in verse 8, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, because of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were utterly burdened beyond strength. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, and this is just one way that God uses suffering, including suffering from sin. He says, This suffering was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. What does David do at the moment where he experiences the consequences for his sin? What does he do that we have no indication that he has done to this point in months? 
He comes and he falls down before the Lord. He says, I I need you. Deliver me. He prays as he hasn't prayed since before 2 Samuel chapter 11. The hard reality of our lives is that God is going to use suffering in order to help us know and love him more. Now, I can't, I don't understand all the the components of this. I I don't believe, as we see other places in Scripture, it's not that the the son is being punished for the sins of his father. There's a a whole other story, I'm I'm sure, for his eternal life. But we know that David is confident, I, I agree with David, that David and his son are going to be together for eternity. But there's this period of of time where David's sin has consequences for other people as well. Okay, last word here, comfort. We want to be willing to pray to God. I'm I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to prepare me for eternity. But then we see comfort. We see the word comfort. David comforts Bathsheba. They have another son, Solomon. He sends Nathan, the the prophet, and and now Nathan says to call his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And isn't that interesting, right? Sometimes people have this understanding of God's will. Okay, and maybe this is you this morning. So this this is the comfort that God has for you. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm, I'm I'm in this spot. And I'm in this spot because of the consequences of my sin. And because I'm in this spot and I'm dealing with all these consequences of my sin, there's no relief for me. It's impossible for me to walk in the fullness of obedience and experience the fullness of God's joy. Like, and, and sometimes there's this view of God's will. So God had this perfect plan for me, and it included this amazing life. And, and over here, I, I made some sort of wrong, of wrong turn, and quick, the whole thing got turned out. And now I'm in some sort of alternate universe where I can never get back on the path that God had for me, and I just have to make do with where I'm at. That is not God's word to you. Wherever you are right now, this is God's sovereign plan for you. And, and if there's a need for repentance, now, now is the time for that repentance, and you can experience the fullness of God's joy and love in this moment, even as you deal with the consequences of sin. God doesn't say, well, I was going to establish your line forever, but now you've, you've done this terrible thing. You've taken this man's wife. You call her her wife. That relationship and everything from it, eternally cursed, see an eternity. He doesn't do that. What does he do? By that very relationship that was begun in sin, he continues the promised line. And it's from that line that we get the ultimate comfort, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. David would never have experienced this comfort apart from confrontation. Confronting sin helps believers receive God's gracious discipline and restoration. Dimsdale, in the, the, the scarlet letter, labors in his guilt. He, he literally and figuratively flails himself to find some sort of relief. It's only when he confesses his sin does he find it. Brothers and sisters, let's foster a culture at Bethany Community Church where we can be confronted and are willing to confront others with loving, gentle confrontation. 
Let's, let's foster a culture where, where loving, gentle confrontation is the norm and seen as the blessing that it is. Because it's only through confrontation that we can turn our heads to Christ. Psalm 141.5 says this, Let a righteous man strike me at his kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan says this. He looks at David and he looks at his sin and says, You are the man. In John 19.5, what does Pilate say to the crowd? Behold the man. In 2 Samuel, we have a man being identified as, as the sinner. In John, we have a man being identified wrongly as, as the one they're, they're blaming, and yet the one who's going to take upon himself the sin of David and all of us. The man, Jesus Christ, who takes our sins on himself, and so we come to him again and again and again, receiving his forgiveness and eternal life. Not bringing our works, but our sin and asking for him to take it from us. And sometimes, it's only through the confrontation of others that we become aware of our need to turn to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you that by turning to him, we can have life in you. And so, Father, help us to be very gracious with one another. To, to love one another enough to, to confront and sin. And, and as we receive confrontation, help us to, to be gracious and willing to receive that, to thank those who have the courage to come to us as they see things in our life that aren't as they ought to be. And help us to, to speak words of life and peace and joy to others. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. As, as we close this morning, I'm going to